0: In his uh, helpful and instructive book, How Long, O Lord? New Testament scholar Don Carson observed that, quote, the unavoidable reality is that if we live long enough, we will suffer. Don Carson was and and is an appropriate person to write those words, for he has personally known suffering in his life. Uh, Earlier in his life, typhoid, nearly brought him to death. Cancer almost took his wife from him. Surprisingly, he said that the most painful trials that he has ever endured were betrayals by Christian friends. One of the more kind of unsettling realities of Carson's suffering is that they are not abnormal, but normal. Probably, even at the mere mention of the word suffering, memories flood into our minds. We remember instances in which we have suffered, or past occasions where we have known the suffering of of loved ones and friends. We can probably even think back on the, the news headlines from this past week and recall stories of suffering. Suffering is all around us, and sometimes it has made its way into our lives. This morning, from God's Word, we're going to think about the subject of suffering. Whether you have yet to face suffering, or are in the midst of suffering, or have come through a prolonged period of suffering. It's my prayer that we'll all be helped as we look at one of David's poems about his suffering. I pray that we will learn from David. I pray that we might learn more about how to trust God in the midst of our suffering. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the psalm, Psalm 13, on page 453. 453. The psalms, as you, you may or may not know, is, uh, they are a wonderful collection of prayers and poems and songs of the ancient people of God. They were often meant to be used in Israel's corporate worship. Uh, they are simple and profound. And teach us something of the the breadth and depth of the emotional experience of God's people. If you haven't spent much time in the Psalms, I'd encourage you to consider making them a regular part of your Bible reading. As a whole, we need to remember where the Psalms are situated in the storyline of the Bible. They are in the Old Testament and the portion of the Bible that's really heightening our expectations that God will send a Redeemer to fully and finally save His people. Previous to the Psalms, the, the, the Bible communicates to us the fact that God, He has created the world and humankind. Shortly after that, we, we learn that man has sinned and separated himself from God by listening to the lies of the serpent, Satan. Man has chosen the, the serpent's side and therefore chosen separation from God, and man is destined for destruction unless God intervenes. And immediately after man sinned, God Promised to intervene. He promised to intervene by sending a Redeemer, a King, we learn, who would save His people, rescue them from their sins, who would bring about reconciliation and the, the restoration of fellowship between God and man. And the Psalms are situated in the storyline where the anticipation of full and final redemption is building through promises and types and shadows. And this comes out in the poetic prayer of Psalm 13. When we meet really, each new king, because David's a king in Israel, when we meet each, meet each new king uh, in Israel's history, we're, we're kind of meant to ask a question. Is, is this the king who's promised? Is this the king who will save us from sin and death? And of course, we know that, that none of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament are the final savior uh, that God promised to send. That king is Jesus. And yet, all of the kings in ancient Israel, teach us what Jesus will be like or what he won't be like. Uh, The kings of Israel teach us what the king of kings will be like, what he will endure and what he will accomplish, what he will overcome. And one of the things that Psalm 13 teaches us is that like King David, King Jesus will suffer. In Psalm 13, we are invited into the heart of King David. This is a psalm of lament. And so we hear David complain about his suffering. Call out to God for an answer. And remember, the only thing that will keep him from sinking into despair is the steadfast love of God. Through this psalm, we see a preview of what Christ our King would suffer for us and for our salvation. Let's read Psalm 13 now. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing To the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. I believe it was Derek Kidner who uh, once said that psalms often move from trouble to trust. That, I think, is true, and I think we see something of that here in Psalm 13. In fact, Psalm 13 has three distinct movements. In verses 1 and 2, we are confronted by some painful questions from David. So painful, it sounds like he's almost complaining to the Lord. There is the trouble. And then in verses 3 and 4, we hear David petition God to do something about his trouble. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, David's trust is revealed. We're going to unpack these three movements under three headings. In our suffering, first, we should complain about our suffering. And not to worry, I'm going to qualify that. Secondly, in our suffering, we should call out to God for an answer. And thirdly, in our suffering, we should consider God's love. Complain about our suffering, call out to God, consider God's love. Those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin uh, with our first point. We want to begin by thinking about David's suffering. Thinking about verses 1 and 2. We're considering what it looks like to complain about our suffering in a sober and godly way. So do this. Let's read the inscription in the first two verses of Psalm 13 again. David writes, to the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You know, these verses are not very difficult to understand, are they? They're comprised of a series of questions through which we can immediately perceive that David is suffering. Now, we don't quite know what painful circumstances that's uh, going on in David's life that caused him to write this. Nonetheless, what's described in this psalm could have been endured by David on, on multiple occasions in his life. In fact, the, the lack of specificity in this psalm. In a strange way, it adds to the utility of it. Anyone who is suffering can pick up this psalm and, and pray it back to God. It, but there's something that's worth noting even before David's first question, and that's the description of Psalm 13 itself. This, this poetic prayer was handed over, did you notice this? To the choir master. This psalm could be sung with full weight and emotion by any individual Israelite and the gathered congregation of the covenant community. Even even in this, I think that David is a model for us. He does not keep his suffering to himself, but he shares his suffering with the covenant community. Have you done that? You should do that. Uh, You should share your suffering with the covenant community that God has placed you in. Christian, you should share your suffering with the church family that God has placed you in. And you should also... Express your suffering to God. That's where David begins. David begins his lament. That's a poetic complaint. His lament with a phrase that he's going to repeat four times in the first two verses. How long? David's experience is not brief. It seems to drag on and on. And suffering, as we know, in and of itself is difficult. But the thought of it carrying on for any length of time is tiring. You can, you can feel the sharpness of David's pain in his second and third questions there. David asks, Will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me? Now, these two questions are, are really getting at the same thing. For, for God to forget David would be an act of God expressing his displeasure with him. It would be an act of, of, of God's rejection of David and therefore it would be an act of God's judgment upon him. For God to forget would mean that God would not remember His promises. We see this concern in other places in Scripture. So, for example, in Exodus 32, when the people of Israel had had formed that golden calf, uh, we see God threatening to punish and not remember His promises. And on that day, Moses sought the favor of God. He asked God to not forget, but to remember the oath that He swore. Remembering and forgetting in the Old Testament have particular connections to God God's covenant promises to his people. God gave David, this king here, a specific promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There, he, he told, there the Lord told David that his descendants would reign on his throne forever. Perhaps David is fearful of God forgetting that promise when he says in verse 1, will you forget me forever? Still David raises another concern there in verse 1. He, he feels as though God is hiding his face from him. And the Old Testament, this has particular connotations too. When God hides His face, He's expressing divine displeasure and discipline and judgment. So, for example, in Micah chapter 3, verse 4, when the prophet is in the midst of rebuking the leaders of Israel, he says that when, they, when the leaders, when they cry out to the Lord, the Lord will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. God's response, his hiding his face, was a response of judgment. David, he wants the blessing and favor of the Lord. He wants to be remembered by God and not forgotten. He does not want to experience the judgment of God as he hides his face. It's precisely the thing that David feels is missing, the favor of God resting upon him. And David's expectation of favor and pleasure is is not necessarily misplaced. After all, let's remember that promise he had from God in 2 Samuel 7, that a king from his line would reign on his throne forever. God's promises should come to his people with a sense of certainty for them. Now, we we all recognize that we're not David, we're not kings in ancient Israel like David, but... As believers in Jesus Christ, in a similar way, we too have been given many great and precious promises from God. Promises that we should be certain about. Right? Didn't didn't Jesus say, I'm with you always? He said that in Matthew 28 to 20. But I wonder, even though you've heard those words before, I'm with you always. I wonder if you've ever felt like David has felt. Have you ever felt forgotten by God? Given circumstances of your life? Have you ever wondered whether or not God is pleased with you? Have you ever felt like a, a dark cloud has descended over your life and you feel like it's hung over you for an unbearably long time? Have you ever said or have you ever wanted to say, how long, oh Lord? Added to this terrible sense is the reality for David that he cannot escape his own thoughts. In verse 2, he asks, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David's his own thoughts and questions seem to torment him every waking moment. He is all alone. And did you notice how deep David's painful questions run? We see it in that phrase, sorrow in my heart. What about you? Are there hopes and dreams that have been deferred in your life? Have you grieved the loss of loved ones or grieved the loss of a friendship? Or perhaps you're sorrowful that a relationship with a family member seems just beyond repair. Maybe you're sorrowful from what, from your perspective, seems like a lost decade of your life. Maybe you have felt what David felt. Maybe you have felt or maybe you even now feel all alone. You feel all alone, and your feelings and your thoughts just seem to eat away at you. And yet, even this is not the end of David's lament. There's still another layer to the suffering that he is experiencing. He cries out, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David is an enemy that's, that's dominating him. He is, is nearly defeated or experiencing the pressures of an impending defeat. He's, he's being humiliated. We've all been there before, haven't we? Maybe it's a sibling who in a quarrel has triumphed over us. Or am I the only one who's been beaten up by a sister? Uh, maybe you feel like there are enemies in your workplace. Uh, those who always seem to get the best of you. Maybe some of your enemies aren't so much people as, as other things. Maybe you feel like a, a prolonged illness is reigning over you, triumphing Over you. You know, members of our church are facing all kinds of illnesses, from hands and knees to the stomach to ears, even illnesses affecting brain functioning. My guess is is that many of us here this morning have asked, How long until I get better? Maybe you wonder, Will I ever get better? Maybe you face an enemy of another kind. Maybe there are some sins that you are struggling with that you feel defeated by. You can't seem to climb out from under their weight, and you fight, and you fight, and you fight, and you fail. And you feel like there's no one to help you with them. You feel all alone and defeated on the field of battle. This is David's lament. A lament of a distant relationship with God, unending inner turmoil, and a seemingly victorious enemy. And, and for the most part, I've been speaking to believers and, and followers of Jesus, but if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of Jesus, friend, I suspect that you can relate to David's suffering too. You, you may know some of this suffering in your life or in the lives of others. And friend, if you can relate to this, and please listen carefully to me, If you have experienced this and can relate to what Psalm 13 says about David's experience, then here is the reason why. The Bible tells us the truth about ourselves and our world. The Bible tells us the truth about suffering and about why we suffer. It tells us why we have a distant relationship with God, why we experience inner turmoil, why we feel defeated. We suffer in this world, and suffering exists in our world because we have sinned and rebelled against God. We not only suffer, but we have even contributed to the suffering of others in our rebellion against God. We have all hurt other people with our words and our actions. You know, when God first made the world, He pronounced that His creation was good. It was free from any form of sorrow or suffering. God even made man in His very likeness. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, they were created to rule over all that God had made. God gave Adam a command. There was a tree from which he should not eat. And God said, you may not eat from this tree. But sadly, not long after God gave Adam life and breath, he went to that tree and ate of the fruit, rebelling against God's good command. Sinning. He was rebelling against God's gracious rule. And because Adam endeavored to really usurp God's throne, curse and condemnation for man's sin entered our world. God, you see, he could not let Adam's sin go unpunished. God is holy and just and good. And so he had to punish sin. And Adam's sin brought sorrow and suffering into our world. The world that we live in has been marred by Adam's fall. And if we are honest with ourselves, we can see this truth in our own hearts. Thoughts of murder And envy and lust and anger and greed, they all tell us that we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. That we would have done what Adam did if we were at the tree. David experienced suffering, and we experience suffering because of sin. We experience suffering as a consequence of the general curse that the created order is under because of sin, or because of a consequence of our own sin, or because of the sin of others. So what do we do with our suffering? Let's think especially about what to do with our suffering when we face it, not because of the consequence of our sin. So, so David here in Psalm 13 appears to be innocent. Now, now, we know that he's a sinner. We discover that in other places in the Bible, even other Psalms. We know that David is a sinner. But here, David is not confessing sin. He does not appear to be suffering because of what he has done. Rather, others are oppressing him. And so what does he do? He complains about it. That's what a lament is. It's a a complaint. Now, he doesn't complain in a sinful way. You, You notice here, nowhere does he charge God with wrongdoing. Nowhere does he say, my suffering is not good, so God, you are not good. No, David does not say that. He doesn't call into question God's goodness or benevolence or love. Nowhere does David question God's power or his sovereignty. Instead, he complains about his suffering in the sense that he expresses the pain of his suffering and asks, How long must this go on? And I wonder if you've noticed that in asking this question, David recognizes that God is in control in the midst of his suffering. David recognizes God's control and his pain. You know, Christians are not Stoics. We do not lie and say that everything is okay when everything is not okay. If you've given that answer before, if you've said that everything's okay when everything is not okay, brother or sister, don't give that answer the next time. Tell the truth and share your suffering. David expressed his suffering and now we have the benefit, the privilege of learning from it. It may surprise you, but the Lord might be pleased to bring good to others through your suffering. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction." so that, purpose clause, so that God comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You hear what Paul is saying there. Sometimes God is pleased to use our past experience of suffering to help comfort others in the midst of their suffering. If you don't share your suffering, it will be difficult for others to share with you the comfort that they have received from God in their suffering. Recognize this too about your present suffering. God may be bringing you through this trial so that you can help someone else down the road. If if a brother or sister shares their suffering with you, remember that you are called to bear their burdens and sorrows. It's a positive command from Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. What that means is, is that you need to do something more than saying, thanks for sharing, I'll pray for you. You may actually need to pray for them. Uh, and call them and, and check up on them. And, and walk with them in their suffering. And go with them and, and meet an elder to receive encouragement and help. There may be a number of things that you need to do in order to help bear their burdens and sorrows. And the truth is, is that half the time, you're not going to know what to do with their suffering. And that's okay. That's okay. The Lord will help you. All that He calls us to do, He will give us the grace to do. Pray, search the Scriptures for guidance, and ask Him for wisdom. All that He calls you to do, He will give you the grace to do. Here in these first two verses of Psalm 13, we learn that we should complain about our suffering. Uh, in, In the sense that we should make our suffering known to God and others, we should complain in faith. And what does that mean? What would it mean to complain in faith? Among other things, it means that we call out to the one who can do something about our suffering, which is precisely what David does next. So let's turn and consider our second point call out for an answer. Call out for an answer. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now let's just take in the obvious here for a moment. All right, David is praying here. He's, he's petitioning God for help. In your suffering, pray and ask others to pray. Children, youth, y- young adults, let me encourage you to pray. Pray for those who are suffering. You, you, you probably have friends or classmates or teammates or family members who are suffering. Pray for them. Uh, perhaps sometime this afternoon or this, this evening, ask your parents or a mature Christian friend to help you pray for those who are enduring some kind of trial or suffering that you know about. Whenever we are confronted with suffering, one of the first things that we must do is pray. David's prayer requests in these verses uh, somewhat pair up, actually, with his painful questions in the first two verses. So in verse 1, David asks, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me? Now take a look at verse 3 here. His first question... For relief is for God to consider and answer me. Which is really, honestly, just another way of saying, don't look away from me. Look upon me. David is calling out to God for an answer. He wants God to remember his love toward him, to turn his face toward him. David wants the words of Aaron's blessing from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26 to be true for him. He wants to hear the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is the favor that David is seeking, the shining face of the Lord, the peace that knowing God brings. David's second request is that the the light of God's countenance would light up his eyes. What would it mean for the Lord to to light up David's eyes? Well, as, as one commentator put it, to give light to the eyes signifies the same thing in the Hebrew language, as to give the breath of life. In short, David confesses that unless God causes the light of life to shine upon him, he will be immediately overwhelmed with the darkness of death. See, David fears that if his eyes close, he will sleep. But not just any sleep, it will be a sleep from which he can never open his eyes again. And let's remember that we're, we're reading poetry here. David is using the most extreme words and circumstances he can find to express his extreme suffering. This is how heavy it is for him. David is is feeling the weariness of wrestling endlessly within his heart. David is requesting nothing less than than life restored, breathed into him again. Have you ever been so weary that you feel you're just near to death? You know, Sometimes depression can feel this way. A kind of, of heaviness on the mind and the eyes and the body and the soul. David's prayer, his petition, his emphatic crying out to the Lord is so appropriate in a time like that. If you've struggled with depression or discouragement, you know just how important it is to pray, Lord, give me life. Give light to my eyes. And, and with this request... For God to give light to his eyes, David presents two arguments for why God should regard him and give him new life. Look at the last part of verse 3 again. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Two, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Three, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. The first argument for why God should act is connected to David's own death. And the second argument is, uh, is, is that David... Uh, should, should David suffer defeat, his enemies will rejoice over him. You know, David's prayer is a prayer of deep, deep dis- dependence. It was a prayer for God to restore his life. This prayer was a cry from David, but it was also a picture of what God would do when he gave light to Jesus' eyes as he laid in the tomb. The father could not and would not let his son sleep in death. He could not, in the words of Psalm 16, 10, in Acts 2, verse 27, let the body of His Son see corruption and decay. He would not let the enemies of sin and death triumph over Jesus. Jesus got up from the dead because God looked on Him. He turned His face toward Him, and the dawn of His countenance gave light to His eyes. Yes, God remembered His love to David and to the Son of David. So he raised Jesus from the dead. Our eyes can be enlightened too. Our eyes can be enlightened to see our sin and our Savior. Jesus has defeated our enemies, the enemies of sin and death. In his resurrection, and we have... The promise of new life. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have new life. And it is a new life in which our enemies... Have been defeated. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set them aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him. See, brothers and sisters, all that stands and points its finger at you and condemns you has been defeated. Jesus made a public spectacle of them, of our enemies. The power of sin and death no longer have sway over us. Yes, we, we battle sin, but it is no longer our master. The resurrected Christ is our master. It is in the power of his resurrection that we now live. Satan can no longer say, I have prevailed over him. No, because of our faith union with Jesus Christ, we can say to sin and Satan, In Jesus Christ, I am the victor. I have new life in him. And what does this new life mean in the midst of our suffering? Well, the the world would tell you to to focus in on your suffering, that there's nothing more important for you to think about than what you are enduring right now. And, And while it's true that you need to give attention to what you are enduring now, it is not true that your suffering is the most important thing that you need to give attention to. As a Christian, you want to endure suffering... The way that Jesus endured suffering. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. Jesus suffered with what was yet to come in His primary field of vision. For the Christian new life in the midst of suffering, we honestly recognize the difficulty of the trial. But more than that, we recognize the joy that is yet to come. The joy of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more sorrow or suffering. New life looks forward and it brings tomorrow's joys to bear on today. Practically, that looks like setting your hearts and affections on our resurrected and reigning Savior in heaven. And it looks like proactively helping others to set their hearts and affections on Christ in heaven. And through his own model, that is what David does in the conclusion of this psalm. He places his faith in God. So let's turn now and reflect on our third point. In our suffering, we should consider God's love. Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. Consider His love. David writes, verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. Some, some commentators have suggested that there's a sudden shift in the tone of the psalm. When moving from verse 4 to verse 5. And to say that there is a shift is kind of a bit of an understatement. Uh, that phrase, but I, is, is really actually very emphatic. It's a bold declaration. Still, I, I don't think that we should be too surprised by this shift. For as the great Virginia Baptist theologian J.L. Dagg once wrote, if prayer will not bring God to the soul, it will bring the soul to God. If this psalm is nothing else, it's a prayer of bringing the soul to God. And one of the pathways to peace for the people of God is through prayer. After all, in prayer, our hearts are rightly oriented because we recognize that we are powerless and that God is infinitely powerful. So these words, I have trusted, are not surprising. In fact, they carry with them the idea that this is something David has done, is doing, and will do. It's a commitment. A choice that David has made, is making, and will continue to make. It's it's one of the things that we often fail to remember in the midst of our suffering. Often in our suffering, we feel so overwhelmed that we fail to remember that we're actually making choices and commitments along the way. What David is teaching us here in Psalm 13 is that we have a choice in our suffering. We will either choose to trust in God in the midst of our trouble, or we will not. Notice that David trusts in God's steadfast love. Just like linger over those words, His steadfast love. There's, there's light and hope in those words. God's undeserved favor appears in those words. The, the light of the hidden face of God is shining through those words. it has not failed to shine. God has remained steadfast, unmoved, and unchanging in his love for David. God's love is relentlessly persistent. Dear Christian, do you know how God has expressed his steadfast and unfailing love toward you? God's love is as sure as his own character. Isn't it a great comfort that the love of God is tied up with his unfailing character? His love is so unlike our own, isn't it? Our love is often fickle. But His love is constant and full and deep. His love can never fail because He can never fail. God's love is a love that you can trust in. It is a love that you can lean on and depend upon. In fact, the purpose of God's love is for you to rest your very life upon Him and His love. Friend, if you're you're here today, you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then we want you to know that God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to make His steadfast love personally known. And here's how He did it. God, He sent His one and only most beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to endure the sufferings pictured and portrayed in this psalm. You see, this psalm was not only David's lament. This psalm was also the lament of Jesus Christ. David's language seems to transcend his experience in some ways. It's anticipating something greater. Were were David's experiences describing the psalm real? Absolutely. They were absolutely real. David was experiencing a temporal trial from which he deeply desired to be delivered. But the psalm is left open. Did you notice that? David doesn't tell us that he has been delivered. But rather, he is trusting in God's steadfast love to deliver him. He is trusting in God to save him. David, you see, was not ultimately forsaken by God. And the proof that David was not forsaken is Jesus Christ himself. God promised David that an heir would reign on his throne. If God had forsaken David, he would have forsaken that promise of an heir. But Jesus is the son of David. He is the king of and heir that God promised. What's more, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus tells us that the Psalms were about Him. And in David's lament, we can hear the echoes of Jesus' own words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken. And so His lament was, in many ways, different from David's lament. God did, in fact, hide his face from Jesus as he hung on the cross. Just before his death on the cross, when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he he said, he, he told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. How much more was his heart overwhelmed with sorrow and grief when he experienced the abandonment of God the Father on the cross? After having been eternally united to the Father in love, Jesus experienced Not only his absence, but the holocaust of God's eternal wrath in his soul. He was truly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as the prophet Isaiah said. Darkness descended upon the cross as the enemies of Satan and death seemed to triumph over him. On the cross, Jesus suffered. He suffered the wrath of God due to to the sins of his people. He suffered. He died a death of suffering for sinners. He lived a life of suffering for sinners. And to light up his eyes and raise him from the dead. God did. For all of those. Who would ever turned from their sins. And placed their faith in the crucified and risen king. That they might never be forgotten by God. But always remembered by him in love. Jesus did this so that we might be forever Looked upon in love and live eternally. Friend, I urge you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what this means, what it means to trust in the steadfast love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than this good news. Brothers and sisters in Christ, because of God's steadfast love, we see that David now, he he sees the truth. The truth that God did not forget him, so his heart cannot help but rejoice in the salvation that God will secure. David was certain that his suffering would come to an end. The trial he was enduring had an end, just as every trial that a Christian faces will have an end. Let that be of some comfort to you. Your trial has an end. Yes, it has an end in the sense it has a goal of making you more like Jesus Christ, but it also has a definitive end in time. David rejoices in the salvation he knows. And so how, and so how can we not but rejoice in the salvation we know in Jesus? Christian, what kind of salvation do you know? God has brought you out of darkness and into light. In God's free grace, He's pardoned you of all of your sins. He's accepted you as righteous in God's sight. Receive this righteousness by faith alone. In God's grace, you are being renewed in your whole person after the image of God. And are increasingly enabled to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Not only that, but you have been received into the family of God. And you have a right and a privilege to all of the benefits that come with being a child of God. Christian, this is the salvation that you know. And at every point, it's meant for your eternal joy. Can any joyful heart be kept from singing to the Lord? With full certainty of God's love and salvation, David commits to sing to the Lord. And why not when the Lord has been so good to him? The Lord has been abundantly gracious to him. What what an ordinary thing to do in suffering to sing who sings in their suffering Christians do Christian hasn't God been good to you hasn't he been generous and gracious to you hasn't he dealt bountifully with you then you've got to make that known somehow and and might I just suggest that you make it known how David makes it known by singing Sing of God's goodness and love. Wherever you find a Christian, there you find a person who sings. Now, they may not sing well, but they do sing. And and as we conclude, I just want to point out one last thing here. The end of this psalm, it pairs up so well with the beginning. In the beginning, David feared that God would not remember his love to him. In the end, David knows that God did not fail to love him. In the beginning, David lamented of the sorrow in his heart In the end, his heart rejoices in the Lord's salvation. In the beginning, David feared that he would be defeated by his enemies. And in the end, we know that through Jesus Christ, David's greatest enemies and ours have been defeated. Should the Lord call us to suffer, let's follow the pattern that David has set here for us. We should share our suffering with our God and with God's people. We should call out to God to give us life and strength and faith in the midst of our suffering. And we should remember God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ. Jesus knows our suffering. He has suffered. Our sufferings are, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Our sufferings are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. However heavy your burdens feel now, know that one day, because of the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ, your earthly grief will be outweighed by heavenly glory. Let's pray together.